I, I often think about the the cross-bearing side of what I do in counseling. The every day provides some reason to say, some occasion to say to God, not my will, but yours be done. And, and that under that cross, which our fathers always called the dear cross, because you seek the face of Christ under that cross um, and you find him. And, and the spiritual gain is, you know, profound. All the Christians of depth I know, any bit of compassion I have or anything I know about Jesus, it really doesn't come in the sunny days. It comes in, you know, and so how much the Christian counselor on both sides here has to bring to that situation, you know, the, the drinking of our cup and the, the befriending of our reality and the submission of our spirits. The, the one verse says in Hebrews, let's submit to the Father of our spirits and live. It's saying yes to our lives. That is Dr. Mark Paustian, and this is the WellMind Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Coles. I'm thrilled to introduce Mark to the WellMind community. He is one of those people that immediately communicates trust and compassion simply through his presence in conversation. He has been a formative mentor for me, and we talk about the ways our paths have been interwoven through the years. In this episode, we take an intimate and vulnerable dive into the experiences of providing soul care in our careers and relationships. Mark continues to mentor students through his role as a college professor of interpersonal communication, preaching, and apologetics. He served as a parish pastor for many years and draws on his wealth of knowledge and experience in serving people throughout our discussion. We explore many themes and topics today, some of which are hope, comfort, acceptance, anxiety, suffering, community, and purpose. I truly cherish my time with Mark, and it's a joy to share this conversation with all of you. So, here is episode 12 of the WellMind podcast, Soul Care with Dr. Mark Paustian. Thank you, Mark, for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited to embark on this journey over the next hour plus with you and uh, just excited to see where we go today. So thank, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. Awesome. Uh, Mark, I think it's good just as we're starting off here to do a little introduction so the audience can get to know you. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about kind of where you're at in life, personally, professionally, and maybe a little bit about your background. Okay. I'll start with the background, and uh, that's great because you and I have some history there. We do. Yeah. yeah. I was a 1988 graduate from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, and my first call was to start a church from scratch in Rockford, Illinois, and uh, wasn't the perfect fit for my personality, but God blessed it. And Along the way, I remember this family showed up, and it was the Coles <laughs> family. Yep. And uh, so I confirmed you. Yep, back, yep. Back, the, the one the year that we lived there in That's northern right. Illinois was, yeah, it was eighth grade for me. That's right. Well, I remember that um, the man was visible in the boy. <laughs> you were just just this ideal confirmand. And um, I was trying to remember this. Like, you were a kickboxer. Do I have that right? Or what was it? Yeah, well, I was in karate at that <clears throat> karate, point. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we so... I had been, we'd been living in Ohio for the previous three or four years, and I got connected with a, a karate school there and was very passionate about that at that point mm -hmm. in life. And 
Um, I do remember because we lived a little bit south of Rockford. Um, on the weekends, we would drive into a suburb of Chicago so that I could train and take classes there. And right. uh, it was a huge commitment from my mom, who I, I'm eternally grateful for uh, in her support for that. But yeah, same thing then with confirmation, because then we'd drive up. Mm -hmm. um, I think at that point we were meeting at your house um, and we would have confirmation class at oh, like your definitely. dining room table. Definitely. And were there uh, three of you or four of you? Or uh, I think there were the most. four of us. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, another guy and then two, two gals. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I still, it's kind of interesting because I actually remember examination mm -hmm. more than I remember the actual confirmation service because church was at the, uh, the college campus is that what right it was like we, in an auditorium we used a chapel, chapel. on a college campus yeah right? yeah right. but it wasn't available for whatever reason and we end up doing examination at this like heritage site it was like a museum old church yes yeah so i mean it right. was it was like 1800s and we call it old time religion sunday yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i remember that vividly yeah and that's a long time ago yeah we're, we're sitting up front in this church and it's yep. just this long narrow white church building and we're on these creaky old wooden pews yep. passing the microphone back and <laughs> forth answering questions oh that's just great i remember you being pretty accomplished at the karate weren't you at an on a national stage if i remember I, right? yeah i i was uh i was lucky and privileged to be able to compete at a national level yeah. and um i went to the junior olympics a, a couple of mm -hmm. times and um again tremendous support from my parents uh in, in doing that and that's so cool yeah. i just thought yeah i bet your listeners don't know that so I no would, no would not, think, not too many people do i yeah. don't that's oh. not something that i uh reference no you wouldn't you uh, wouldn't but, but uh, so anyway yeah those were good days i was an exploratory mission pastor for 12 and a half years um i'm a very introverted guy actually i, I tell my students i do the online test for personality and uh click click uh, for my results and the computer smokes and the sprockets fly out because they can't really <laughs> can't really measure me um so it was a really blessed life and a blessed ministry challenged me on that level yeah um but i would build a beautiful church and in 2000 i moved on to martin luther college a whole different change in my career path and i've been there for 20 years now yeah uh, my main thing is communication um, I have my master's from Mankato here, and recently, well, five years ago, I guess now, I got a PhD um, in communication from a place out east in Virginia Beach. Okay. So I teach interpersonal communication. Um, I have most of our students in that at Martin Luther College, of course, our College of Ministry. A uh, new thing is I teach a course for our pasture track guys that is half of it is an intro to preaching or homiletics and half of it is an intro to Christian apologetics. So uh, fascinating stuff. Really, really love developing that. Uh, married to Connie um, got, and I have two girls, both married in the same summer, two summers ago to wow. tremendous young men. One All is, at once. Yeah. Five weeks apart. <laughs> oh boy. So two father-daughter dances in one summer. How two, special. Two sermons in one summer. Yeah. Um, one of them is a brand new Christian and that's a whole story for another day. Just a beautiful story. Mm. So yeah, that's uh, that's my life. Very cool. I, I wonder what that decision making process was like to move from the parish ministry into you know teaching, professorship, more academic. It it was traumatic. Um, when I made the decision, I, I've always said I couldn't explain to anybody, much less to myself, how I finally said we're going. Never thought I would. 
I thought of myself as a sort of a general practitioner, as a physician. You just you don't you don't move on. You serve mm -hmm. from you know from mm -hmm. cradle to grave. That's what I thought was my life. And mm -hmm. um, but again, it wasn't in every way the easiest fit for me. And so a number of things drove the decision. One was uh, I thought it might be better for my family in certain ways. There's a health issue and so on. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it was very very traumatic uh, to to left on a Christmas Eve. Wow. Confirmed. Uh, I think confirmed eight people that day. One was a young woman riddled with cancer. One was the first um, family of color to join, and, and it was a beautiful thing that, mm -hmm. that farewell. But sitting at uh, St. Paul's in Noam, like a month later, my little girl who was four years old starts to cry, and she says, I wish Daddy was still my pastor. She, oh, she wails this. <laughs> I wish Daddy was still my pastor. So that was, it was really traumatic. Really yeah. Well, not yeah, not yeah. just for you then. I mean, for the that, whole family. Yeah, that yeah. was a huge change yeah. of life for everyone. Right. But things came along that <clears throat> have validated the decision. Mm -hmm. Opportunities I can't even, could not have dreamed of, and mm -hmm. a life I couldn't have been smart enough to design for myself. Just mm -hmm. everything I care about is built in right now. Mm -hmm. You know. So we're very, very blessed. We are. We are definitely thriving as a family. All, 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 all to God's grace. But. Yeah, that's an insightful question, Ben. That was yeah. not the easiest thing. Yeah. Well, those are, that's just such a, a huge change. And you were talking about how even just going into the field, planting a church, starting, like that wasn't necessarily congruent with what was comfortable for you. Definitely. And, and, mm -hmm. and so then getting comfortable with that, maybe to, a, to an extent, and finding a rhythm with that, and then this huge, this huge change. Mm -hmm. I, and I bring that up in part because that just resonates with me, you know, having been a mental health counselor for years and years and years, like as my primary thing, you know, when I worked most recently at the hospital um, over in Sioux Falls, the volume of children and families and teens and adults that I would see in a week was super high. You know, mm -hmm. it's a hospital system inpatient and, <clears throat> You know, as I was going to school for my doctorate, I was thinking about this whole teaching thing. Like I wanted to get that advanced training for to be a better clinician, but you know, the program is in counselor education. So I mean that's that's really the aim. And I thought, well, it's gonna be another 10, 15 mm -hmm. years down the road before I embark on any, you know, counselor education as a full time kind of professional identity. And uh but that that isn't what the Lord had planned and uh, mm -hmm. has definitely guided things in a different direction for me to the point where I'm at now, which is still continuing to do some clinical work, but uh, very m much focused now on counselor education and, and developing a program and developing people then in that program to to serve as professional counselors mm -hmm. as, as their career. You know, so yeah, there's a difficulty, but I'd have to say it's exciting too, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. for me, it was to kind of step off the script mm -hmm. and to step into a life I'd never have dreamed of for myself or coveted or anything. Mm -hmm. So there's something refreshing about it too. Mm -hmm. And to bring our history full circle, I would. It's been wonderful reconnecting with you, Ben. I you you came to MLC and talked to our faculty about just mental health issues for our students, and I was near the back, and I thought. Man, I confirmed that boy. I was just so <laughs> proud. I mean, seriously, it was a fantastic presentation. I, I was blown away. And so you and I made an appointment to have lunch, and I just wanted to catch up and pick your brain on counseling. And then I stood you up, of course. Yeah. <laughs> which I, well, it's all in the past. Well, that, which that I was, still regret. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah. 
But so I thought, whatever this conversation becomes, if it can be maybe partially that conversation, mm -hmm. just uh, mm -hmm. you know, talking counseling and from our yeah. two different perspectives. Yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I love that. I've I've spent a lot of years uh, talking with pastors about the complementary roles uh, that that they have alongside a mental health counselor. And I understand too that my background and training is unique in a lot of ways mm -hmm. within Christian circles because I have that ministry training background from from MLC. I mean, and you were one of my professors there mm -hmm. too. I oh, mean, that's I right. took I took your interpersonal communication class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's been kind of these mile markers for me where your influence, your your presence has been mm -hmm. uh, pretty formative, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, so that's something that I've just been incredibly grateful for. Well, and I'm very pleased to hear it. And to have that private conversation now in front of 50 million people, <laughs> whatever it is, I'm just really curious, when did this when did this spark grow to become what you are? Was it in staff ministry? Yeah. Perhaps? Yeah. So long story short, mm -hmm. first year at MLC, I, I was studying to be a pastor. And uh, about halfway through the year, I just said, I don't think this is the right fit. It's close, but not quite. Mm -hmm. um, there were aspects that I really loved and aspects that I just, I felt myself already having to really work at being motivated for. And I said, well, that's not sustainable for, for the long term. Very so, true. Um, and I, but I didn't, I knew I wanted to serve, so I, I didn't want to leave MLC. And so there was this opportunity for staff ministry at that point and, and went through that five-year program and had a year working at, uh, at a church as a staff minister, doing a lot of youth and family work, visitation. Um, and so in uh, visitation, meaning like homebound and elderly mm -hmm. and folks in the hospital um, for good and bad reasons. And um, I just found that the things that fulfilled me and drove me were one-on-one. -on -one. It was just like being present with people, providing some education, but also really more so just being with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, Professor James Pope teaches the counseling class at MLC in, for the staff ministry program. And that was also pretty formative for me and saying, yeah, I think I want to do that in a full-time capacity. Mm. So that was that pathway. So you've got some training in counseling as an undergrad that other people at our college don't tend to get. That's interesting. It, yeah, it was a unique exposure. And I mm -hmm. actually went, funny story, I went back and just spoke last year at when we were having in-person classes still and um, spoke to that counseling class that he teaches. And, you know, there's, I don't know, a dozen people or something mm -hmm. like that. But he had found this old VHS tape in his archives <laughs> of me and another student, like doing a practice counseling Perfect. session. So of course he pulled that out and we played that, <laughs> uh, that little excerpt. And I, I just said, ah, you were wearing jeans and a t-shirt, Ben, come on. That is so <laughs> unprofessional. <laughs> I couldn't get past that. So do you use the word Privat sales organ like pastors do? do you, is that a familiar term to you? That is not a familiar Because you just term. said it yourself. So privat sales organ is German for individual soul care. Mm. And the, I, I think there are students that realize there is such a thing to devote yourself to, just the private one-on-one -on -one intervention and help with God's word. So I can see that lit my eyes up for a while too. I thought if I might ever choose a second career, I thought that might have been it. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of interest in it. As far as my training, it's limited. I read a lot of books and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. So yeah, so 
we would think, you know, from a, just a, a reasonable standpoint that a pastor's job in, in part is going to be fulfilling that soul care. And mm -hmm. so I wonder like when you were in the parish, what did, what did that look like for you as a pastor? What did, what did that soul care look like? Sure. So the pastoral ministry compared to teaching is much more of a, an easel to paint on. There's, so there's much more shaping the ministry toward what you are gifted at, what you love. And so for me, I think my style of preaching and teaching did uh, create a lot of counseling. You know, for example, to preach on the question of the blessing, did you receive the communication of unconditional love from your dad, your mom? And you know that obviously preaching like that touches on a whole undercurrent of feeling, mm -hmm. and that creates a month of counseling, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was happy, happily engaged in that kind of ministry, even though there are things that would test me as far as am I qualified for the particular things that are coming up. And again, the, the larger question here is the question of collaborating with prof professionals when you're a pastor. Mm -hmm. That came up for me often because I did do an I did, did do an awful lot of counseling. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, one of my curiosities, um, I'd be interested in hearing your take on this, in terms of how pastoral counseling and the counseling you do are different. One thing that jumps off the page to me is that when I counseled somebody in the parish, there was a larger relationship there. So we related to each other mm -hmm. outside right. of the counseling. Yeah. And uh, just talking to my son-in-law, who's a psychologist, he, he's let me know there's kind of a dance that goes on when you, you can tell me if this is true or not, but when you meet somebody in public whom you've counseled in private mm -hmm. as a client, you know, you're not the one as a counselor to, to indicate or signal or reveal that you have any relationship yeah, at all. 100% right? true. It's up yeah. for that person to say it if they want to and so on. So what I find interesting about that is um, when you think about the sort of wholeness that by God's grace you hope a person will grow into and as they come through their struggles or learn to cope with them, um, that that wholeness includes a reciprocal love and serving that it seems to me or has seemed to me in the counseling office there's a bit of a one-way street so I'm serving this person and they're receiving that and it's totally appropriate totally appropriate it just struck me that one small advantage of pastoral counseling is that it can it can resolve in a mutual relationship of love and trust and mutual serving so is there anything there have you thought about that or yeah it, it's a fairly subtle point probably but yeah so I, and that that's uh i didn't know that that's where you were going to go with that but that's okay <laughs> that 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 is i think i think this um this experience of multiple relationships with one person that's when i've talked to pastors whether that's um at the seminary here at Bethany or, or folks out, already out in the ministry, mm -hmm. that is one of the points that we definitely address and bring up. Like you're probably serving on a board with this person. You're, you're seeing them on Sunday. You're mm -hmm. providing Lord's Supper. You're maybe baptizing their children. You're doing Bible study class with them. I mean, there's, there's so many different roles that a pastor can find themselves in with their parishioners. It isn't just, I mean, you're always pastor, but pastor how varies. Mm -hmm. It's it's completely different with a counselor. Like I've, I have one role and that's as the mental health counselor. And occasionally that extends into a second role of being an advocate. So in my practice, seeing a lot of kids and adolescents, there are also times then when I need to interact with entities like the school or 
an after school program or, or extended family or caregivers, those kind of things as an advocate. And so that, but those two roles are very narrow. And so <clears throat> that idea of a one-way street, for sure. Um, but I still bring in the relationship that I have with the client mm. into the room. And whether that's through use of immediacy, of talking about like what I'm experiencing, you know, if a person is doing a lot of um, asking, inquiring of me, you know, like, what do you think about this? Hmm. What do you think about this? Or what do you think I should do here? You know, I, I clarify, like, I feel some pressure here to kind of be a, to give you guidance or, or advice. And that's uncomfortable to me because I want you to have that agency in making your own choices. And so that's a really small example of mm -hmm. how I kind of will use the relationship to help them understand what they might what what they might be doing in other relationships as well. Hmm. Um, that's that's fascinating. I, I hadn't thought about the complexity of that relationship when you put it that way. And the uh, power of your own self disclosures that I, it sounds like it can be part of that. Mm -hmm. That you are a human being and not mm -hmm. just a, a wall to talk to. I think that's fascinating. So so one of the courses I took to try to grow my own expertise. Um, for the counseling I do was here in Mankato at the university. Um, it was interpersonal helping skills where you uh, you go in a booth. You've probably done this over and over. Go in a booth, yeah. camera on both your faces, and yep. come back to the classroom and see both your faces. Yep. Put it up on the big screen yep. for everybody Analyze to see. Analyze every yep. single thing. That every you little do. movement of your foot or your hand. You know what? The first time this happened to me, um, I didn't realize what was going to happen. Mm. So I'm in a booth and I'm playing the role of a client and I was being asked some really good questions, and I disclosed a lot. Mm. <laughs> and I didn't know we we're going to go back into the classroom and have this oh, all be public. Shoot. So that was yeah. a, a mistake of the professor, I'd okay. have to say. Yeah. But anyway, a very, very useful class. But I mean, that's part of what interests me about how pastoral counseling might be different, because in that class, I mean, she really pounded this into our heads that the answers are in the client. Mm -hmm. You don't go telling this person what to think or believe or do, mm -hmm. you know? And she, we talked about her, we both know the same professor, and she was brilliant. And what she taught me was, is there really is something to the listening skills. There really is something to drawing on things from within the other person. Mm -hmm. Because if I can ask you, what would God have you do? What do you think he's telling you? What, what would please him here? Or what's your responsibility here? The fact that it comes from you, um, maybe after some consideration, Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's something to the fact that that might be then more fully yours. Yeah, that you takes know. so much patience. Absolutely. Though, and, yeah. and frankly, a lot of time. And that's one of the biggest differences between pastors and mental health counselors, too, is that this is, you know, when I walk into work, this is what I'm doing from eight to whenever. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a pastor, this is just a, a fraction or a part of what you're doing. And right. so, so you're your time is has to be limited as a pastor right in another way as well so a person needs a lot of help how much of that can i provide mm. like can i see how many people can i see every single week mm -hmm. you know that's another side of that limitation yeah. but so so is this a difference it sounds like it is that i think it's powerful from a pastoral point of view to apply active listening skills for let's say 50 minutes mm -hmm just reflecting the feelings I'm seeing and asking open questions that I think are the powerful ones, you know, um, 
paraphrasing the content you're saying, just all those micro skills. Yep. And beginning with no agenda, no assumptions about what this is, but then along the way, an agenda forms. And let's say, having listened to you for 50 minutes, that at the end, as a pastor, sometimes I am directive. And maybe it's partly because I don't have the time to, you know, skip this part or, or um, have a different strategy. That at the end, I'm going to say, okay, I do have something to say here. And I do have something to teach you. It might be the theology of the cross, you know, drinking your cup or um, what God uniquely does through suffering and and weakness, you know, yeah. he does his best things. And so it might be, I'm going to teach you about that or open to a part of scripture that mm-hmm. captures that. And mm-hmm. maybe I'll have you read this little section here and we'll talk about it at the end. And so that is to say that the pastor is not a non-directive counselor, you know, and right. that is that, does that really name yeah. a major difference? I, I think so. I think frequently pastors are in a position to be directive because you're dealing, the, you're dealing with potentially a lack of biblical information or a lack of biblical direction or maybe they're too focused on what does God's law say and they're missing what the gospel has to say about Absolutely. about their condition or about their situation and so you you're in a position to to bring that to them and you can't really beat around the bush when you when you're when you're doing that you just here here's what God's word has to say about it <clears throat> whereas as a counselor I'm coming at that clients often have like a lack of insight, a lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's lagging skills involved here, whether that's interpersonally or intrapersonally, you know, mm-hmm. my, with my own regulation. And so there is some teaching, you know, I frequently am helping clients develop uh, mindfulness skills, breathing skills, grounding skills, those kind of things. And so there is some instruction there, but far more often it's helping them explore, uh, examine, and evaluate. And then as as desired by the client to be able to bring in God's word as another source of information for them to consider as they're exploring, examining, and, and making some choices so that they're accessing their faith within their decision-making process. I can totally embrace that view. I really do understand that. Um, and so the the role too itself is very interesting because in the communication field, right now today this is a really hot topic is how when you move from 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 one role to another, from father to professor, whatever, that it it just does bring in a whole different set of characteristics, a whole different set of traits and skills and behaviors. And it's not that we're being false; it's just that the role itself draws on these other mm-hmm. sides of us and it's mm-hmm. fascinating stuff so when i'm talking to my son-in-law it was not that long ago i was talking i just happened to mention some recurring dream that i'd had across my whole lifetime and i saw something come over him and i just saw there's a there's a switch that got flipped mm-hmm. <laughs> all of a sudden he's attending to me with this full-on mode of whatever i don't know how, how to describe but you know what i mean though yeah yep. he's he slipped into a helping role just mm-hmm. in that in that moment and i thought it's just such an endearing thing to see in this young man, mm-hmm. you know. But so there's a uniqueness to that role, isn't there? Yeah, fully attending to someone with all your skills and background and training. Yeah, and we we can't um, separate who we are as a person from who we are as a professional. So, mm-hmm. regardless of being in that pastoral role or a, or a professional counseling role, like we still bring who we are into that setting. But then, 
what so so all of those skills like from pastoral counseling or from professional counseling like you've been kind of taught and and then you're practicing those things but after a a period of time and maybe this is a little bit of what you observed in mm -hmm. in your son-in-law is that that professional identity then kind of like kicks back and starts influencing who you are personally too <laughs> i can Be see it and, and and i can definitely see that in myself i mean even within my own home my my wife will joke with me lovingly of course <laughs> and say you know stop therapisting me <laughs> when, when, when we're having a discussion about something and I, I and it's not something that i am doing like in an intentional way, mm -hmm. but I recognize, yep, that's happening. Like I'm, I'm drawing from who I am as a professional to kind of help me navigate that situation right. as a individual person. I'm, I'm smiling because this professor we talked about, she would say that her kids would always say to her, mom, you talk weird. Oh, and, yeah. she, and she would say, want me to stop? And they said, no, we like it, yeah. but it's just weird. <laughs> yeah, you talk weird. Yeah. 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 So anyway. You know, part of, again, part of the thing I hope we would talk about is related to this, and that is the decision of a pastor to say, <clears throat> I don't know enough about this pathology, whatever the right word is, and the, the decision to go and and make a referral, mm -hmm. and then also how that collaboration can, can look. So, And then an addition, additional question is when a pastor refers someone, carefully mm -hmm. you know not to a counselor who will find their faith to be their major problem mm -hmm. and go yeah. go about dismantling it yeah. um but why why and how a pastor stays involved with that person that he's referred you know if i don't what, what do i know about manic depression mm -hmm. you know it's kind of an inch deep what do i know about anorexia as a pastor it's kind of an inch deep mm -hmm. and these are situations i can imagine needing to make a referral yeah you know and for my students i've always kind of said I ask a question, why don't you take your hands off at that point as a minister of the gospel? And together we draw from them the answer, mm -hmm. which is that they trust you. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the first thing students will say very perceptively. They trust you. And I know that you would agree, Ben, that when one of your clients trusts you, it's palpable as far as what can happen. Mm -hmm. As a pastor, I felt that, you know, how many times that a person in front of me is in a posture of, yes, pastor, you know, tell me, you know, mm -hmm. ready to receive wisdom and to live it yeah. compared to when that, maybe the relationship is newer or the trust isn't there for some other reason. Yeah. And so that's the first thing students correctly identify is that why would you squander that? The power of the relationship that does exist already. Um, but then we also kind of end up saying, um, I mean, first of all, we all agree that if someone has a broken leg, you don't say, well, you got to have faith, you know? Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. it's just, I know you can speak better about this than I can, but it's no less true of of depression, anxiety, things like that. You don't, yeah. the whole answer isn't just, you got to believe. Yeah. You know? But but the reality is, is when somebody breaks their leg, their mobility is limited, their life mm -hmm. changes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think then there's a, there's going to be a spiritual component to that. Exactly. Some, even if it's just from an existential standpoint, like I can no longer do the things that I want to do, or that maybe I feel like I'm doing to serve God's kingdom, and and I'm upset about that, or I'm hurt right. by that, or I'm disappointed, or all of those things. And so, even in the even in physical ailments, there's still a, a spiritual component to it. Yeah. But I th I think it's the what's the primary focus versus what's the secondary focus, and and so. 
for a mental health counselor, right? Mental, emotional, relational health, those are kind of at the forefront in dealing with somebody that's experiencing depression or anxiety mm -hmm. or a bipolar disorder or whatever else. And then their physical health, their spiritual health, those are secondary. So they're still important, they're still an area of focus, but that's not kind of like, that's that's B, that's not A. But for a pastor, I think, yeah, that spiritual health and their their connection with their savior and and growing and maturing and deepening their their faith, that that's A. That's a primary mm -hmm. focus. But you can't ignore, you know, B and C in terms of their emotional health, their relational health. And those are oftentimes the things that probably drive somebody in to the pastor's office are those emotional, relational uh, things and then you end up talking about those spiritual yeah. things and you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, that, that is so but... good. You you take my thinking further. I really appreciate that. So even the broken leg, you know, is an example of how there's still we still still our spiritual creatures having and our spiritual life is implicated even in that. Mm -hmm. And so, how much more if you're dealing with the other issues we mentioned that are truly psychological and very painful things yeah because i mean how I, much more don't you need to hear from god how much yeah. more don't you still need to hear about his grace and so that the called worker or the minister of the gospel never disqualifies herself or or himself never says well i've got nothing to say to this because mm -hmm. i made the referral he, he or she knows how to deal with this particular issue no we never step back and take our hands off and so i'm sorry yeah I no, no I, I, it just sparked in me a, a memory that i had um when i was uh working as a staff minister in, in the mm -hmm. church um <clears throat> i one of my responsibilities was doing visitation and so i don't remember what day of the week it was but i had a day every week that i would go up to the hospital um it was uh, isj at the time here in mankato and i would go in look at the list see if there were any members from the church in the hospital and uh you know sometimes family members would let us know and sometimes they wouldn't but i remember there was a member in the intensive care unit and it was you know something to do with heart failure or something along those lines and i i personally had never been in the icu hmm. before and so i'm this really green like i'm not even graduated yet i'm interning but here i have to go into the icu and uh and he had wires all over the place and tubes coming out of all different parts of his body. And it was just a really distressing mm -hmm. kind of scene. Um, and I, I had that same thought, like, what, what am I doing here? Like, <laughs> I'm the last person that should be in this room, that it's the nurses and the doctors attending to this, this person's physical needs and well-being. Um, and I don't even know if they could hear me, you know? So I just sat down by the bedside, opened up to the devotion that I had brought with me, I read that, I prayed, and that, you know, no response, I, I don't know, but I was there. And in hindsight, I look back and I say, no, it was good, it was good to be there. It was good that, that somebody was there to be able to attend to the spiritual well-being of that person at that point in time, because that's not what the medical mm. staff were there for. Correct. That's what, that triggers a story of mine too in, in about three different ways. One is being green. Mm. <laughs> My story from three decades ago is being called by a family to come to their house and they had a daughter who was who was manic depressive and she was very new in that journey. She's doing great now. And I have I've, I've gained her permission to talk about her because mm. I do in, in my classes in a couple different 
really impactful stories that I've told about her. Anyway, so the first experience, though, and I'm like, I'm like two years into my ministry. I'm called to the house. And I enter the living room, and there she sits. And there's, a, there's an empty chair beside her. And there's probably seven or eight family members all around the room. And I was supposed to sit down beside her and pretty much fix her, mm. you know. And I didn't have the presence of mind. This is how green I was to ask for privacy. So I just carried on mm -hmm. in, this, in the situation mm -hmm. they had set up for me. And she was uh, so sad she couldn't speak or look up or respond in any way. She's just slumped over looking in her lap, uh, tears rolling down. And so this is, you know, this is what a pastor experiences, having had no <clears throat> real training in manic depression or anything like this. Mm -hmm. But uh, that doesn't mean I was disqualified, you know, right. because of the Word of God that I'd been been steeped in. And But I remember it was about a 30-minute monologue. Mm -hmm. She can't respond, so I can just sit beside her and just say, Mindy, hold on. That's not mm -hmm. her real name, by the way. <laughs> hold on, hold on. And spoke about the cross and, mm -hmm. you know, and the reason for hope and the one who understands her pain. You know, God Himself does. He He just does, and and so I remember seeing her in the hospital. Um, I don't know how many months later, and she just she said, "Pastor, I could hear you. <laughs> I heard you. I was holding on to everything you said, but I just couldn't respond in the moment." You know, but I think I think of that story now as sort of the ideal collaboration experience because yeah. I think I, as her pastor, who knew her, who she trusted, and all the professionals that circled around her. It was it was uh, really quite wonderful mm -hmm. seeing seeing her needs in different ways, and all of us drawing on our experiences. And um, it's just one of the times when I can say is where I gained my respect for those that give their lives to professional helping because mm -hmm. there's just is uh, in humility. Mm -hmm. There's just things there a pastor hasn't been trained in, but what we have is pretty special too. So yeah, no, this is what we're that, saying. That, you know? that, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> that, um, we need to be able to attend to the whole person. Right. And how we do that, like you can recognize if somebody's struggling physically with an ailment, but you're not going to say, well, I can also, you know, diagnose and treat that. But you're going to say, no, I, let, let's get connected with somebody that can help you. Same thing with uh, mental health and emotional needs. Like you could see, okay, this person's not going to be functional just staying at home and being here. They, they need a higher level of care. They need more people that have that special focus mm -hmm. on being able to understand what's going on, you know, biologically and, and emotionally for this person. So whether that's therapy, whether that's medication, whatever that um, right mix is for that person, you need that specialist. But I, you know, as much as pastors kind of say they're generalists, I think they mm -hmm. are specialists in that sense too, is that they, they have this this ability, training, and experience within God's Word to provide a, a, a comfort and a, and a guidance that lots of other folks are not mm -hmm. prepared or trained to do. Mm -hmm. And so that, that collaboration, I think, is critically important in being able to treat and care for the whole person. I agree. And so when it's good, it's really good. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. when that relationship is good, it's a, it's really powerful. Yeah. I, so a, a follow-up example, and I'd be curious to have your reaction to this. So here I am, again, young pastor, green is green, and it's the manic depression situation again. And the question that was put to me was the following. Um, she has just come down from her manic phase 
which I came to understand is not pleasant either. If you think mm-hmm. this is fun, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just different. Yeah. You know, the it's decisions. It, yeah, it's a different pain. It's a yeah. different struggle. The decisions yeah. she makes that ruin her life, then she has to come down to the consequences. And so it was, it was incredibly hard to watch. But I remember one day the question in my office was, okay, Pastor, this is what I'm coming off of. And I know enough about my pattern by now that I know what's coming next. You know, I know the mm-hmm. other part of the cycle mm-hmm. is coming. Mm-hmm. And her question to me as her pastor is, how do I not go to that place? You know, and what in the world, you know, as far as am I equipped for this? But I remember in my fumbling around, I I finally said, well, imagine that Jesus is sitting right here. He, he's here, so let's imagine him. And, and I said, imagine he says to you, Mindy, not a real name. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to tell you why, but would you do this for me? And I don't know, even know where that came from, but I remember tears came to her eyes, and, and but she smiled too. And she said, it, she just said so softly, she said, I never thought about that. You know, that, wow. And, and I've always thought about, so what does this mean to the father? To, to look at this girl and say, I can take away from her every feeling every good feeling um, and every feeling of me and every feeling of my presence. And there she follows. She still follows in love and trust. And it was just a profound thing. I'm not sure where it came from, you know, but um, how would you react to that? Was that... A a bipolar disorder is such a heavy burden. Oh, that is so clear to me. Yeah, it's it's not... You wouldn't wish it on a dog, I mean. No, absolutely not. It's... um, And it's lifelong. I mean, there isn't a point at which somebody gets to where they say, I don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's gone and and done. Um, things can get better. There can be long periods, Mm -hmm. um, without any relapse for sure. Um, but it's never, it's never gone. And so Mm -hmm. that burden is, uh, present throughout the lifetime. And in that moment, I look at that as, well, what, there isn't a way of taking away that burden from a spiritual or really a mental health standpoint. I mean, Mm. yep, we can talk about medication and treatment in a second here, but, um, but it really is dealing with that and offering encouragement and comfort as they experience that burden Mm -hmm. and her knowing and, and recognizing your presence and, and because you're reflecting the love of Christ to her, that, that strengthens her, that gives, right. And in faith, we say, well, it's in my weakness that I see God's strength, you know? And, and when those mental health burdens are active at that moment, knowing, well, there's nothing I can do to disrupt this cycle at, at this moment in time, um, but knowing that, that you're there mm-hmm. as, as that uh, uh, horizontal, you know, relationship, but mm-hmm. that vertical relationship is also present. I, I, that, that reassurance, I, I guess is what I'm looking mm. at is like, there, there's this encouragement and there's this reassurance of God's presence in her life, even at those darkest moments. I, I, I really appreciate the validation. You know, I, I, I often think about the, the cross bearing side of what I do in counseling. The every day provides some reason to say, some occasion to say to God, not my will, but yours be done. And, and that under that 
cross, which our fathers always called the dear cross, mm-hmm. because you seek the face of Christ under that cross, um, and you find him. And, mm-hmm. and the spiritual gain is, you know, profound. All the Christians of depth I know, any bit of compassion I have or anything I know about Jesus, it really doesn't come in the sunny days. It comes yeah, in, yeah. you know, and so how much the Christian counselor on both sides here has to bring to that situation, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the drinking of our cup and the, the befriending of our reality and the submission of our spirits. The, the one verse says in Hebrews, let's submit to the Father of our spirits and live. That It's saying yes to our lives in spite of the kind of courage it took when she did, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I guess I, I'm curious, you know, what a secular counselor thinks at that moment. I suppose it's not entirely unrelated, but it just seems like there are resources in the church that, that uh, my bias is showing, of course. There's just yeah. so much deeper yeah. and so much broader. Yeah, I, and and it's like I've been up, I've been in the yeah secular field. I've been mm-hmm. in the secular classroom. Um, spent the majority, actually, probably of my time in mm-hmm. in that world. Um, and knowing what I know, like there there is, so that in that moment, I think okay, a, a good counselor. A professionally trained counselor is is going to do a couple of things, mm-hmm. and, and one is that same reassurance, like I'm here, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. We're going to work through this together, you know, so that that client feels that counselor's presence, and that again is powerful and meaningful and impactful. And you want a counselor that can do that. Um, but then they're also going to work to try and facilitate some self compassion as well, mm-hmm. like because. Um, with any mental health condition, at some point as a person is struggling with it, there's a tremendous amount of like guilt and shame that come up from that and like self-judgment and self-criticism. Like there isn't anything that another person is gonna say to them that they probably haven't already said, Mm -hmm. you know, a hundred or a thousand times. And so um, kind of nurturing or cultivating that self-compassion is again, something that, that, that good, you know, well-trained uh, professional counselor is going to do. And then they're also going to recognize this is also outside of my expertise because I'm not a medication provider. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a right. counselor. Right. And and in the example of a bipolar disorder, medication, psychiatric um, care is critical. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's I would say, even paramount. You right. know, if, if you can't have a, a chemical and a biological balance, then all of the therapy in the world it isn't going to change that. Um, so, so that that's again treating the whole person and understanding that there is a biological component to that. And you know whether you know it's the it's the old standard of lithium or something like mm-hmm. that that's that's mm-hmm. introduced to help stabilize that person from a mood standpoint. Well, then great. That, and so, I think a professional counselor is going to do that, but the the Christian counselor is going to. Um, be able to source that self-compassion in a in a location other than themselves. Mm-hmm. And well said. I, see, this is the very thing I was hoping for. I'm learning things about manic depression that are kind of beyond my like. What is a long-term prognosis, for example? I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known what you just said. Um, so, self-compassion. I, I love you brought that up because you know I pick my son-in-law's mind all the time and. Mm-hmm. He's taught me about this. So here's my take, and you tell me. And then here's how I try to process this as a Christian. So 
we're steeped in self-esteem and self-image kind of stuff, which is important in its own way, obviously. But he's helped me to see that self-image and self-esteem, that whole milieu is evaluative. I'm looking at myself in the mirror or in the social mirror, maybe, what do I see coming back from other people um, as far as what I'm worth? But that self-compassion is this non-evaluative thing, you know, and that's that's the whole difference, isn't it? That mm. you, you get it just for being part of the train wreck. You, you get this for just being part of the human race. Yeah. And as a believer, you get this especially just for being part of the family of God. I Jesus weighs out into a crowd of hurting people, and he's not evaluative. He touches every single one, you know, in mm. Luke's gospel, for example. And um, So I've, I've thought... I've had to think this through spiritually, you know. And one thing I think about is the psalm that says, um, why so downcast, O my soul? And I think, my goodness, that's how you would talk to a friend, you know. So I, I've told my students this. I say, you're teaching little kids how to be a good friend to other people, you know. Then who are you to look in the mirror and say to this person, you suck? I mean, who, mm. are, you, who are you there to be? Who are you to be treating that person in the mirror that way? Um, the one whom God himself has befriended. And the little thing for me to think through has been where the repentance is in all of this. And, and But I've concluded that if I'm going to help bring a friend to repentance, how do I do it? I do it with a readiness of grace. I I don't say you suck. I, I gently peel back the wound. And it's it's the very very much the same thing. And so obviously Christ's compassion trumps self-compassion. Yeah. He's the one that matters here, but there really is something there. I remember telling a student about self-compassion about, you know, not long long ago, just trying to teach this. And just the response I think I was seeing was, oh, boy, what would life be like if I if I had just stopped mm. <laughs> holding myself up to this impossible standard and if I stopped condemning myself all the time constantly, mm-hmm. like almost being afraid of what life would become because I just don't know how to live that way. And, yeah. So my own story is uh, I had preached at a celebration in ministry of colleagues, and I just felt I did a very poor job. And I just, anytime I'd see one of these colleagues in the hallway, my mind goes right to, oh, I failed them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I embarrassed myself, and it was just bad. And the very next day after I'd learned this concept, self-compassion, I saw one of these colleagues in the hallway, and I said to myself, you know what? I'm human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I'm 58 years old and the furniture is still being rearranged in my brain in some way. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is that there's something very, very powerful there, but, and not, not, not but, something very important there. And when we can just introduce the vertical aspect of yeah. it is God himself who gives you permission yeah. to befriend that person in the mirror. Yeah. You know, um, so it goes again to the question of what I can gain as a pastorally trained person from this field mm-hmm. and i just sense that there's more still than that yeah right? and i think uh that that word acceptance is a really uh important piece here and i don't want to get i guess too much in the weeds from like a psychological oh, standpoint please do. But, <laughs> please do. but but um you know like there there are, like anything there are waves of kind of theories or like ways of practicing that kind of emerge and so you know you have your first wave of like behavioral therapy with like bf skinner and like Mm -hmm. these kind of um founding fathers of the profession and and that evolves over time and things are added knowledge is gained things are 
are changed. And so we get to the point where, you know, we're at cognitive behavioral therapy, where this is kind of a gold standard for treatment for a lot of things. But that, of course, isn't the stopping point. Things continue to grow and, and knowledge is gained. And, and so uh, a more emerging um, theory or approach is this acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a familiar term to you at all. Well, I've, I've sensed from my son-in-law that something I think goes back to Rogers is pretty much part of his thinking, this unconditional high regard, mm -hmm. which is another thing that I think a Christian might complicate in a couple ways. But yeah. but as it stands, I think that's also a very powerful concept. So is, am I in the ballpark? Yeah, here yeah. So it definitely draws on some of those like Rogerian or humanistic kind of mm -hmm. origins, but it really still is in that that cognitive and behavioral framework. But rather, you know, cognitive behavioral framework would say when you have a maladaptive thought or you have a negative thought, you have to target that, you have to change it and restructure your way of thinking. Mm. This, this um, idea of acceptance and commitment therapy is kind of holding up these two terms, acceptance and commitment, and saying I have to uh, work at accepting certain things that I think or certain things that I feel uh, because in in some ways those happen automatically and or they mm -hmm. are part of the human experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like I mess up, I make mistakes, I don't do my best every single time. And so I can kind of choose to punish myself for that or I can mm -hmm. choose to accept that that's the reality. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, it's not just wallowing in that, right? Then on the other hand, there's the commitment side. And that's really informed, again, from a secular standpoint by my values, but from a Christian standpoint, right? Our values are really founded on something deeper in terms of our faith. So our faith values really shape what our commitments are, either commitments to striving mm -hmm. for personal growth, striving to be a better friend, a better parent, whatever that means. But those are my strivings. And then I'm not in either acceptance or commitment. I find myself right in the middle of that. And that's where like mindfulness comes in so mm -hmm. that I can step back and I can recognize, oh, that's that feeling again mm -hmm. of incompetence or inadequacy. And I can accept that that's a part of my experience. But I also know that that doesn't define me. Mm. And I think from a faith standpoint, being able to bring God's word into a framework like that is it I, I think it matches yeah. up really really well and that's something mm. that i've been exploring a lot professionally lately oh fascinating just really good stuff i so so i'm, I'm thinking about the christian who does not want to have the experience that he's having or she's having obviously she mm -hmm. must say mm -hmm. not my will but yours be yours be done but there still is a as far as the resource for, for befriending that reality uh, even the resource to be able to say, this is my life and I want it, is that, you know, not every life has a moment of recognition of Christ as Savior. This one does. Mm -hmm. You know, not every life has has a moment of when this cup is thrown into the ocean of God's joy. This is where my life is heading, you know. And, and as, I, as I look at the tremendous pain out there in the world, I can even say, shouldn't I know something about that? Shouldn't I have my cup to drink that's like that and so there's i think a way that the believer can get to that befriending of reality and mm -hmm. submitting to the father of our spirits and living again mm -hmm. that uh, are unique and extraordinarily powerful and so I'm, I'm guessing what we both have very much in common no difference at all is you i think you're further here's how i'd say it what i'm after is a robust understanding of the human condition 
and a robust understanding of Jesus and what he brings to this moment right here, right now. And I think your advantage over me, just hearing you talk and just all the ways of thinking that you have and the cognitive complexity you have about about the soul, you know, in the, in the psychology, puts you at an advantage in that first part, that robust understanding of the things people can experience in this fallen world. We both care about the robust understanding mm -hmm. of Jesus, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so I'm just thinking more and more about how wonderful the collabor collaboration is when it happens yeah. between our two vocations. Yeah. And I, but so I'm not like pushing back necessarily no, on that, but, but I also want to add to that though, like, and I think this is um, at the beginning of second Corinthians, Paul, Paul's talking about um, pain and comfort. And like when, when I go through pain, I know it's for your comfort and when you're mm -hmm. comforted then I'm comforted too because we're, we're like our hope is firm in God right that that's mm -hmm. the source of all comfort it isn't on self-reliance um, it isn't about silver linings and I, I do I maybe this is just 2020 kind of speaking here I, I I see a lot of people trying to find comfort in their pain by looking at the silver linings and mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, that that's no, I hear you, entirely valid. And I'm very appreciative of that too. I'm appreciative of the time that I've been able to spend with my family during lockdown mm -hmm. and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not what my hope is founded on. My, my, my right. hope is founded on that gospel promise of eternal salvation in Christ and my forgiveness in him, right? That, and, and so that when we're going through this pain as a body, that we are able to then share that same comfort that we receive through God's word with one another. Yeah. And I think that that's where the pastoral role probably has a leg up hmm. on the, the individual counselor, the professional counselor, because in most cases, you're just looking at it from a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation mm -hmm. and you don't have a lot of influence or control on what happens outside of the counseling room. But as a pastor, we've already established kind of coming full circle here, you're involved in all these different parts of that person's life. And you are really part of that, that representation of the body of believers and helping mm -hmm. them connect with their brothers and sisters in the faith through church mm -hmm. and through that community. And, and as the pastor, you're shepherding that, you're nurturing that body. Whereas for me as a counselor, I, I'm limited. I'm, I'm limited in scope in terms of what's actually in front of me, and I don't have that extension. This is good. I mean, what your listeners are hearing and to the glory of God is a mutual respect, mm -hmm. you know, between two different roles. Um, to the server landings thing, I couldn't agree more. I think what it's all well and good, and there's something there, as you said, but what is the reason to minimize the, the suffering? You know, I, I find a lot of my people that I talk to, I think I sense them minimizing. Their, their own pain mm -hmm. and this the pain of the sinner is real mm -hmm. it's a common pain mm -hmm. and it's uh, all our struggles overlap on some level of just it's yeah. hard to be a sinner but all the more why I, I would uh, affirm what you say about the gospel you know that we will always still need the gospel to come to us from the outside as a you know as a as a revelation from yeah, his word it's foreign <laughs> yeah it's foreign exactly right and it's foreign to us and it's beyond ourselves and and um the gift of hearing the gospel above the sound of our own conscience nagging at us or to hear the gospel above the 
thrashing about of our struggles, you know. Um, that is just, that is such a special, unique thing that our struggles are preparing. And so I always think, you know, there's no pass out of the struggles. And some people in God's economy do go through more than others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's no pass out of it. There's the promise of Christ to meet us there and to be there in the gospel and word and sacrament. Yeah. And there's a promise of how temporary it is and how it all turns to gold from the view of eternity. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing, none of our suffering has been meaningless. None of it has been pointless. None of, none of it has gone beyond God's purposes in shaping our souls. Yeah. And we can't see it now, maybe. I don't expect that girl to see it in that moment we described, but mm -hmm. we'll see it someday. Mm -hmm. We will be shouting. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I, I'm thinking about the installation of hope as a, as a key part of both of our approaches, the installation of hope. Mm -hmm. People feel alone in their wretchedness and need to need some sense of universality of what everybody goes through, and even more, they need hope, right? And we, we certainly have those resources yeah. with our Bibles open, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Hope is a, you know, every every research article that I that I read, you know, faith based or secular or otherwise, like on on perseverance or on mm -hmm. like how mm -hmm. people like resiliency mm -hmm. is, you know, that and that's something that, you know, I I feel really passionate about and something that I've talked about, um, and depending upon when this episode comes out or not, like I recorded a solo episode for the first time mm. um, on compassion, fatigue, resilience. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something that I've just spoken about and wanted to be able to share. So that'll be either on either side of this episode. So either people will have already heard that or, <laughs> or we'll be hearing that soon. Mm. But um, hope is such a huge part of resilience and being able to persist in the face of pain and suffering. Um, and that's where the the role, the place of, of faith, I think, really just far exceeds anything that the world would have to offer in terms of hope. Because hope is about, from a worldly perspective, is about things can get better. Think, you know, my, my condition mm -hmm. or my situation can improve, and I'm hopeful for that. It's something that I look forward to. Mm -hmm. um, but we have no guarantees that that's actually right. the case and so then what happens when things don't improve or things get worse people start to lose hope and they become you know in a state of hopelessness mm -hmm. um, and so being able to draw from a a uh, a, a well of mm -hmm. hope that is eternal and um, untouchable yeah yeah exactly wonderful wonderful um Something else that I'm kind of thinking about that I wanted to ask you about, because you started talking about sin, right? You started talking about the sin um, kind of in the world that we've been dealing with, the pain that that causes people. And so from a pastoral perspective, um, when, you, when you're encountering sin, is it most often, and I don't know, maybe this isn't a fair question, <laughs> but you can, you can tell me, are you encountering like overt sin from that person, like they've they've made some choices or they've made some decisions and now that's caused a lot of pain either for themselves or the people that are in their life or that they care about? Or, or are you more often dealing with people coming in suffering from the pain of like other people's sin, like they've been sinned against and now 
now they're they they don't know what to do with that hurt and that pain and it's kind of plaguing them. I, I don't know. Do you have a sense no, of I, that? I do get a broad range of situations. Um, I think what I see most often, you, you tell me if it's in either camp, um, you know, we're seeing obviously an epidemic of anxiety among young people. Yeah. And um, we could have the conversation where that's coming from, but I think that's what I'm seeing the most. For some, a generalized anxiety, they can't name what it is. It's just a, this very, very discomforting feeling. Yeah, pervasive across yeah. all parts of their life. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, I do see the others for sure. I do see that sometimes what I see though is also decision making. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of that kind of counseling you get to do, which I very much yeah. enjoy too. Yeah, but. like anxiety in particular. You know, it's. Um, I mean, there's plenty of scripture passages where mm -hmm. God's saying, "Don't be anxious." Mm -hmm. um, it always provides the reason, though. <laughs> yeah, it never yeah. just never says just figure stop this out it. and stop it <laughs> stop it yeah. do this because of some, because of some quality in god or something he's done that is the mm -hmm. reason so anyway keep going mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and no that's that's kind of what i want to get at too because um like having a uh an eye to the future or an eye to what's coming i think no we don't want to spend all of our time there because we need to be present in our day-to-day -day life but kind of looking toward things in the future and anticipating things being planful um there's a tremendous amount of value in that but you know and and anxiety kind of functions on a bell curve right where mm -hmm. like um there's kind of a sweet spot where you know maybe i'm anxious for a presentation that i'm mm -hmm. going to be giving and so yeah. that helps me to be prepared for it because yeah i want i want to do well or something and then if anxiety is too low in that situation I walk in and I'm unprepared and and it doesn't go very well and I feel badly. Or if anxiety becomes too high, then that's paralyzing. Correct. Sure. And and so, you know, from a, like a clinical standpoint or like a counseling standpoint, I think far more often we're dealing with that upper tail of the bell curve where anxiety becomes too high and it becomes mm -hmm. a source of impairment. But I, I would say like anxiety in and of itself isn't necessarily like sinful or you know it, it's a feeling it's right? a feeling it's right. an experience that we have and then right. there's a purpose for it too sure. right um but again sin doesn't leave anything untouched so of course mm -hmm. it's gonna uh get a foothold in that and so and don't you think it's fair to ask the question practically speaking like for example how do we draw the lines from technology and social networking that whole set of things to the epidemic of anxiety you know, and it isn't just, I don't think it's just that the world is brought into the life of each person unfiltered. That's mm -hmm. probably part of it. Uh, my son-in-law has made me think, I think his analogy is if you're afraid of, you're afraid of snakes and therefore you avoid snakes. And while you're avoiding snakes, your anxiety about them only grows. And so does that possibly relate to the avoidance of people and that we see you know, young people running away from real-time conversations, for example, um, hyper-connected all the time, constantly, but none of it is has a substance that relationship is meant to be. That in the avoidance of that, the anxiety grows. Have you thought about thought mm -hmm. that through? Is that ring true to you, mm -hmm. Ben? Or mm -hmm. um, so I had I had Pastor uh, James Hine um, mm -hmm. on the podcast early on. Um, great episode please go back and listen to that mm -hmm. he's a, a fantastic guy and speaker and makes a lot of great points during our conversation um 
but he pulled out a piece of research in, in that conversation that I'll kind of point back to now. And um, he said, for a long time when Americans were surveyed about how many close personal intimate friends do you have, the most common answer was three. Mm. And just year after year after year, that was the case. And then I think, and he can correct me if I'm off here, it was around mm -hmm. early 2000s, 2004, 2005, something like that. It, it shifted for the first time and we got a different answer that the most common answer that Americans gave was zero. That was the mm -hmm. most common when asked how many close personal friends do you have was zero. And I think that speaks to- That's a profound change. Right, that's a, that's a, a boom in, in terms of our connectedness digitally. Mm -hmm right around those early 2000s um, where big social media platforms were emerging and we were figuring out how to navigate mm -hmm. these online relationships. And that has only exponentially grown. And, and so has the level of disconnection. I thought you were gonna say, how many friends do you have? And they would say the average is 200. You know, because mm -hmm. of the redefining of friend, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it makes sense what you said. It makes more sense, but but it because goes I think to, people still know what a what I hope what they do. does a, a a close personal. Deep I hope they do relationship look like. Do you think they do? One of the paradoxes for me, or the question I've wrestled with, is what do you say about the person who only has that that digital connection mm -hmm. on a social platform? Do we say, well, at least she has that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Or do we say, if that's what she is learning to do and that's what she has, she may never actually realize what you just said, yeah. what a real friendship is. Yeah. And so which is more true? I don't. Mm. I tend to be more worried about that person yeah. than to say, well, thankfully they have at least some human connection, you know? And, and I think we've gotten by this year with a higher level of that, mm -hmm. but it's not sustainable. And uh, this, so in my work with adolescents over the years, there have been multiple examples of times when a person's uh, connectedness with other people is strictly digital, mm -hmm. and but all and their deepest uh, maybe like source or triggers for some of the pathology that they're experiencing is all wrapped up in their online world as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so then, you know, a parent might say, well, let's just stop that. You know, let's take away the phone, let's take away the computer mm -hmm. so they don't have access to those things um, because it's opening them up to this whole world of things that they're not able to handle. And at the same time, that's the only place where they feel a sense of connection or belonging as well. And so then you're stripping that away. Right. And time and time again, that that results in a worsening of symptoms, a worsening of that condition for that person um, because you, you've like just taken everything mm -hmm. from them. And even though it isn't the kind of relationship that you want people to have or would hope for people to have, when you take that away and they have nothing, well, then that's when hopelessness sets in mm -hmm. again too. And so I, th I think you're you're probably accurate in questioning whether or not people, a, a majority of people know what that deep experience mm -hmm. is from. And, and I think that actually isn't, I'm gonna go out on a limb a little bit here mm -hmm. and say, I, I don't actually think that that's social media's fault. I think that's more 
um, a result of the the family of origin, our family, mm. our where we grow up, <clears throat> the disintegration of that, mm. um, and and the loss of those familial relationships and connections that are safe and encouraging and and uh, promoting you know good decision making and health, and people are mm. disconnected from that. That does ring true for me. I, I've often felt like the person who. A person in their brokenness sometimes just needs one, just one. You said three mm-hmm. is the average it used to be. But just one genuine quality, mm-hmm. transparent, authentic, Christ-saturated relationship yeah. is part of their path toward, we never escape brokenness, but a path toward living holy as Christ would intend. You know mm-hmm. that, that sounds and, right to me. And, and, and I think that's where the power of the church community can, mm-hmm. can right. again, meet a deep need that people have. Um, and, and like, I'm comfortable in the counseling room, creating that deep relationship with somebody to build trust. And, you know, that's founded on empathy and understanding and, and with the goal of promoting their wellness. But at some point that counseling relationship is going to end. I've been a practitioner for over 13 years. I don't have a single client that I saw 13 years ago mm-hmm. like all of those relationships have ended and even the ones that were years long you know where i'd see somebody on an offer or consistently for years and years like those those relationships have ended um maybe because i've moved or they moved or you know a change of circumstance but um the mm-hmm. body of the church that community and you know people do move around and things but there's there's a lot more consistency over the lifetime i think to be able to connected be connected with that community mm-hmm. than a, a single person in a counseling room could not agree more ben i i th- i think of it in terms of what is a human being and so a, a human being is more than just a, a psychological thing that got damaged let's say and then needs some professional knowledge to figure this out and fix it that's true as far as it goes, and there's just no dissing of those that that uh, may have that as their approach. Mm-hmm. It's a caricature; it's not fair. But to, the point is that what a human being is is a separated soul, mm-hmm. and so think about the whole human race as a clay jar that just got smashed. So you you look at the individual piece of that smashed jar, and you say, "What does this thing need?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can study it all day long and try to you know until it is brought back to the whole. Until it's brought back into relationship, I think I'm convinced we're relational beings, mm-hmm. and that one of the best understandings of sin is how sin is always going to fracture relationships somehow. So the the clarity of this, how can I ever come alive or be what I could be apart from being brought back together with my fellow human beings, especially in the body of Christ? I I, I think about a hurting person, and I think like a child would say, "What does this child need?" You know it. He or she needs the gospel. He or she needs the message of being reconciled to God and loved at a level she cannot comprehend. She needs that. But I, I think in God's economy, she needs that. She receives that best wrapped in human skin. Mm-hmm. Someone that sees her, knows her, understands her, feels her. Mm-hmm. That that uh, that is sort of the way things are meant to be yeah. as far as getting through this world alive, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So separated souls needing to be brought back together. Can, can't be isolated, can't be can't be on our own and still be whole, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said, beautifully said. 
I have one other question for you. I'm going to pick the brain question. I'll try to make it too long. Okay. But uh, this the anxiety thing. <laughs> so you'll know more about this than I do. I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure. Well, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't have you know thought about, about that. <laughs> have you thought about Viktor Frankl very much? The, the logotherapy thing. Mm-hmm. So my understanding, layman's understanding, just from having read the search for meaning and so on. So here's a guy who survives the Nazi concentration camp, right? Just like yeah. some other really famous people, great people, Martin Buber and Elie Wiesel and so on, who went on to do incredible things. And what I remember, what I remember from reading him is seeing in the extremity of World War II and the extremities of the concentration camp that those who those who sort of had their souls curved inward, like Luther said, and they're, they're the ones that died, didn't survive, as opposed to those that saw beyond themselves. And even in those situations, circumstances, saw to the needs of each other, that they survived, that that he sees something life and death about finding purpose and about finding meaning. And Lehman's understanding is what what he might say about the epidemic of anxiety is that there are certain times, tell me what you think about this, certain times that are interventions may only keep things around. Mm. <laughs> interventions may only exacerbate. We're going to focus on anxiety now, and now it's going to just maybe not be the perfect response. And what he would say instead, as, as shocking as it is, or I wouldn't say it this way, but actually asking a person, so why don't you end it all? Mm. <laughs> and the person responds with whatever it is. Yeah. I'm a good baker, whatever. Mm-hmm. My mom always says so, you know, and it, what he talks about is as much as I would advise that approach exactly, but he just talks about taking those thin threads of meaning mm-hmm. and twisting them together and fashioning for a person, here's why I live, here's why. And of course the believer, again, he was a Jew, um, God love him, the believer has more to say about meaning and purpose than just those kinds of answers but so just that whole concept of do i ever am i ever not helping by focusing on a person's presenting problem Mm -hmm. is there something to let's let's just for now set that aside and ask what is your life for so tell me what do you think yeah yeah i i I actually have quite a few thoughts kind of percolating based on Mm -hmm. that example um the one that i would focus on first is I think there's a cultural context in which these things are also happening. And so when uh, when an American um, wants to work on a problem, they typically go within themselves, mm-hmm. right? They turn to a self-help book. Um, they They look at, well, what can I, how can I change my life, my circumstance, my situation, my thoughts, right? It's very inwardly focused. Um, but there's a, a tremendous power that we see, I think, in cultures that are more communal or collectivist, in which their joy and happiness, their source of contentment or peace within themselves is actually located within their relationship mm-hmm. and, and service to other people. Like, I, I have a a purpose here. I'm not doing just for myself, but I'm doing this for others. And other people pe- depend on that, or appreciate that, or value that, mm-hmm. or you know, I'm I'm offering something. And and I so I think there's a there's a really critical starting point there with with issues of anxiety that we are incredibly focused 
inwardly on ourself and our anxiety. Even, even the anxious parent that's like worried about their child, it still comes back to them not having control or, or influence in that situation. And it's about them. It's, it's not about the other person. And so while you can't like ignore that and say, well, you're coming in for anxiety, so we're just never gonna talk about your internal dialogue or, mm-hmm. or your physiological reaction to your anxiety, we also can't solely focus on that and be able to start connecting them into relationships and situations in which they're able to have different states you know, things Mm -hmm. that are more positive, Mm -hmm. that are more constructive for them. Um, You know, the the psychological term or theory or whatever is gonna be behavioral activation where I'm I'm doing something. And my hope and prayer is that we're doing something in service of someone else Mm -hmm. or something else. Very good. So I I sense, Ben, that you're able to draw on a whole wide areas of schools of thought and philosophies. And so it sounds like you've found the value there too. Yeah, I I think... um, so you have a leg up on me because I haven't read Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. I've seen kind of, or not seen, listened to some discussions about the work that um, he's published. Uh, so you definitely, if you've read his stuff, then. It's been a while to do. Kudos to you. <laughs> uh, I'll put that on my reading list. That's one of the it's, things with doing accessible. this podcast. It's not, it's not a hard book. It's accessible. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah. With the, I was going to say, one of the things, I always come away with a homework list after these exactly. podcasts of, <laughs> of things that I, I'm interested in desiring. So, yeah. I, so I don't know if that, I don't know if that hits, but those, that that's kind of the immediate percolation that comes that it really is about connection. It, there's a tremendous value in service. I'll, I'll go back even to that part in, um, oh, I gotta think, I think this is in Ephesians, um, right? So the first part of Ephesians is all very gospel focused and what mm-hmm. Christ has done for us. And then the latter part of Ephesians is about in our in our thankfulness and gratitude to God, what we can do. And there's some uh, encouragements that like, no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only speak things that build one another mm-hmm. up. And if if you um, are taking things with without asking, stealing, the, you know that that you change that way, and that you do things in active service to to give something to someone else. Right. That the the solution to that that malady mm-hmm. is located in one anothering, like doing something for somebody else. And yeah, I think that's spot on. And yeah, yeah, so so mm-hmm. I think even then we can, yeah. There's I don't think there's an uh, a focused statement about anxiety in that section, but I think we can probably translate some of that into anxiety too. When you are worried about yourself, when you're concerned about your own condition to an unhealthy or an un, uh, an impaired place, that the solution to that in part is then caring for the needs of others rather than solely caring for your own needs. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. You know, I I began talking about introversion just to introduce myself. Um, and that's another example, though. I mean, as a young person, I'm sure I problematized that to, to the end, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, I've learned since that rather than focusing on that by just being quiet and the, the challenges that come with that, but... Uh, but I transcend. I transcend that mm-hmm. when I when it comes to my core passions in life and things I care about the most. I just set that all aside, and my students don't 
experience me as introverted. I don't that think. would be a surprise to them. Yeah, I yeah. think so because I'm out there and and loving everything about it. And so, yeah. of course, by the way, introversion is not. You know, it's just it's just a trait. We're not yeah, it's not ashamed a, of it or anything like yep. that. No, and it's, it's and a different it doesn't experience. mean antisocial. Not at that, all. That's that's the it doesn't mean you don't sometimes. love people. It yeah. Doesn't mean you don't crave attention. It doesn't yeah. mean you have no skills. None of that it means something entirely different. Yeah, it's just about energy. That's, yeah, right. Where, where you yeah. like can recharge and and draw energy. I from think so. And, that is, I think, the biggest thing to yeah. me. And second is the issue of stimuli. Just how much stimuli yeah. and how long our neural pathways are and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's another episode. Sure. But but the idea sure. is, it isn't always what you do that you let yourself become myopically focused mm-hmm. on whatever the struggle is. Mm-hmm. But uh, we can we can be drawn out of ourselves too, can't we? Um, not only by the issues of faith that God reveals to us, but by our neighbor and yeah. the, need, the needs of our neighbor that confront us. Yeah. All right, Mark. We we probably need to land <laughs> the plane here at some point. Uh, so I'm going to transition us, and I want to ask. Um, I, I'm curious what you're working on right now. I, I know, obviously, you're teaching. You're you have a very full time load there at Martin Luther College, but just professionally, personally, what kind of things have you been working on, or what's on the horizon for you? Okay. <clears throat> well, I have a pet project, which is a, a podcast that is out there. Um, kind of struggling along. We have 13 episodes and have been on hiatus, me and my partner, John Weldauer, for a while now. But we're going to, we have an appointment to get back to it. It's called Where Two or Three. It's also available on most of the platforms out there. And the idea is that, so my PhD is in communication. And for me, the integration of what I've learned in communication and our faith is just the most natural one in the world. Just there waiting to happen as far as, um, Christians having thought about communication for centuries, and we have things to bring, you know, um, huge things to bring. And some some of the very top shelf scholars are Christian. Um, another episode would be story in Walter Fisher's contribution. He's a he died about two years ago, but uh, again, a Christian man having things to say. And so the podcast is about Christians finding their place at the table of that kind of scholarship, not only intersecting with sometimes complicating the work we see out there. Um, some things we find in scripture powerfully validated something, for example, about nonverbal communication, validated really in an incredible way in terms of what happens when somebody violates what you expect them to do nonverbally. Well, that actually is an insight into the Gospels. All the nonverbals in the life of Jesus that are on display there, each one being in a violation of what you expect. You don't touch lepers, you know, mm-hmm. dying men don't shout in loud voices. Mm-hmm. Just every single one has this, it's inviting us to pause and linger over that jesus weeping at the grave of lazarus pause and linger over that you know what is this saying about how god feels you know so that's one example of this kind of playground that my friend john and i have found a former student have found just to see how christianity and theology marry each other really well Mm -hmm. you know so that's a pet project and a side um but it's out there i just finished a book um and so I'm right now in the rigorous revision process of a book on worship. It's called Our Worth to Him. It's meant to kind of turn upside down how people might define worship as how we show what God is worth to us. Well, there's something bigger, bigger going on in Lutheran worship, which is our worth to Him. And uh, that's really why we gather. And so, um, yeah, I, uh, people I really respect have read it and I received really incredible 
feedback. I just so, so encouraging. But then I opened up the document and saw how much revision mm. <laughs> they left for me yeah, to do. Okay. And okay. so, um, but pushing through that, I, I uh, am learning a ton do you in have, this part of the process. Do you have an anticipation of when that might actually get oh, published? Then? Definitely. The, uh, the uh, Wells, our church body, is putting out a hymnal. It's going to come out, God willing, next fall. Okay. And there's a whole bunch of companion books. So a resource for musicians, a resource for pastors, and mine is a contribution for lay people. It's more of a series of meditations. Okay. Um, and so it should come out at the same time. So I have meditations, for example, on the church year, meditations on every component of the common service, mm-hmm. meditations on the people that serve and how they serve. And so, awesome. it, yeah, you know, someone asks you to write a book and you say yes, and you just did something to your next three years of your life. Yeah. You just created an, an obsession for yourself. But uh-huh. it, but uh, what better thing to be obsessed over? Yeah. So yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I'm excited for that. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Looking forward to it. Thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. We've certainly covered a <laughs> lot of ground today and and talked about a, a wide range of things within the the context um, of our of our time together. So, I don't know. Are there any are there any favorite resources that you have? Things things that you are interested in right now, maybe you're reading or you're listening to um, that are in some ways connected to what we've talked about today that that you could recommend? I was forming an answer, Ben, until you said in some ways connected. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it doesn't have to be connected. Well, as as we talked about the things you get to teach, you know, it is a a wide range of things. Yeah. That's what I love about it. I think they... My areas of teaching cross-pollinate in some cool ways. So right now I'm doing a lot of reading, both about, um, well, a lot of readings about apologetics. Okay. And I just picked up Timothy Keller's The Reason for God, and I'm really, really enjoying that. I don't advocate everything. He has a chapter on hell that makes me pause and stop and think about, but there's so much useful there. Mm-hmm. So um, it goes to the question of our confidence in our own Christian faith, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, people in a secular day just feel their faith as something fragile. All around us are people that can easily imagine the non-existence of God. They just don't find that difficult to imagine God not existing. Um, whereas in a certain time past, that would not have been so easy to imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that experience of our own faith is fragile. Um, and the pressure Christian people feel to lay the rational grounds or else surrender. You don't have a right to this if you don't fully lay to the satisfaction of everybody else what these grounds are. So I think... That's a that's just a whole other kind of core passion of mine is that issue of defending our faith, especially for those who are most vulnerable. And apologetics seems to be an emerging or well re-emerging uh, area of emphasis and focus within the church. Well, there it's interesting you say both emerging and re-emerging. Um, there has been apologetics in our past, as we can talk about the role Luther gave to apologetics, um, but Lutherans have been very quiet. And for some very valid reasons, in terms of our nervousness about the role of reason and so mm-hmm. on, and so. But I think a lot of people among us, you're correct, are discovering we can't stay out of this field, and that we actually have some unique contributions mm-hmm. to make with our Lutheran sensitivities. So, so there's that. Um, yeah, a book by maybe this is a um, something in the sweet sweet spot between our topics. Tullian Tavitian has a book called A Glorious Ruin, and I've just recently finished that. It is about the issue of suffering. It's a 
So it's a new contribution to that perennial problem. Yeah. You know, yeah. glorious ruin implies we live in a breathtakingly beautiful world, and we live in a bre- in a breathtakingly painful world too. Mm-hmm. And and he has insights such as he says the last idol to fall is the idol of explanation which is to say, I will trust in God when he explains things all to my satisfaction. It's one of the last idols to crumble. That no, I have seen my God on a cross in my place, and I will trust him. I will trust him and wait in hope. And so that's the that's the tone and nature of this book. And mm-hmm. so on the com- communication, communication scholar side, I'll mention a book I've been advocating. Another whole new episode could be story and narrative. So I mentioned Walter Fisher. Well, his his uh, groundbreaking book is called Human Communication as Narration. Not a Christian book at all, but surprisingly accessible as far as people that want to, people that have an instinct for story, but could think, could enjoy thinking more deeply into why this is a powerful communication form. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a strong, strong recommendation off the top of my head. So awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking those out mm-hmm. and, I'll put links to those um, titles and resources in the in the show notes. Okay. Awesome. Mark, it's been fantastic having you in the studio with me today. Um, I've loved just catching up and just spending time with you. Um, there, it's everything that, uh, that I hoped that we could uh, do today. And I definitely uh, would love to have you back on the podcast in the future as uh, different topics uh, emerge, or your, you know, even next fall when your book is out, sure. and being able to talk about that. I mean, so so many good things for for us to to cover. Well, not to invite myself, <laughs> but, but have you thought about worship as part of your the sweet spot of your podcast? Because I wonder if that isn't something that really does have a fit someday. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That tell, you, tell me more. How do you describe the life of wholeness? So. Where do we want people to arrive as God blesses them with our interventions? Is is worship not part of that? Mm, mm-hmm. You know, that could be could be fascinating to think that yeah. through. Yeah, I am very open to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, this is, um, you know, this project has been an emerging one for me too. I, I didn't have any preconceived ideas about what I wanted this to be. Um, it was really something organic that has just kind of kind of come out of me and and mm-hmm. what I um, find meaningful and important and that's that's conversation you know being able to connect with another person on a topic in a rich you know deep way um, I, I have been having those conversations with people in the therapy room for years and years mm-hmm. and uh, to be able to bring that type of conversation podcasting is a uh, has been an awesome platform for that. So this, I'm still shaping. I'm I'm still uh, figuring out what this is and what it's going to be. And so I'm, yeah, incredibly open. I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any boxes that I say, oh, that doesn't go in this box oh, or no, that one. Of course it's, not. It's, it's uh, of course not. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. All right. Thank you, Mark. It's been thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable. Ben, thank you as well. Thank you, Mark, for coming on the show, and many thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe through your podcast app so that you automatically get the latest episode when it's released. Also, consider taking a moment to review the show if you found our discussion meaningful to you. Word of mouth is great too, 
let people know about the well mind and spread the word. Please check out the show notes in the description to find links to the resources referenced during our conversation today. Many thanks to the staff here in the Bethany Lutheran College podcast studio. Greg, Seth, and Caleb are awesome in providing technical support and editing for the podcast. And special thanks to Lauren McMacken for designing the logo and cover art. This is my final episode of 2020. Creating this podcast and sharing these initial 12 episodes truly has been my joy. And I appreciate all of you that have been along for the ride and listening. I will be taking the next two weeks off from publishing new episodes, and I will return on January 11th with show number 13. I also have some new things coming for the podcast in 2021, and I'm excited to share them with you. Rest assured that I will continue to maintain the focus on wellness and creating a space for meaningful conversation. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, Merry Christmas and be well.